Okay, here we go. Uh, January 22nd, 2012, lecture discussion number 53 on the book of Romans. And I was talking to a, uh, someone before church, and I said, if you have come today for the first time, and there's a couple here that way, uh, you have missed the 52 lectures that precede this. Thank you uh, for taking the kids. And if you have missed the 52 lectures uh, prior to this, it may be a little bit of, um, of challenging, but I, I'm sure that there will be something in it that you will find uh, that uh, you can go away with. But I, I was telling uh, Ira's wife, uh, who's also Amanda, now we have too many Amandas. Um, huh? Let's not go for a third. Uh, one was trouble. Oh, yeah, don't boo the new Amanda. That's really thinking. Yes, good. Thank you for that. Uh, but I told her the, that story about the uh, lady that came to me after uh, two years and told me that she had finally understood a complete lecture. And that, uh, that, by the way, is pretty common, and I would say actually pretty close to right. It does take quite a while uh, to figure out what I'm doing, and uh, that is because uh, I intentionally make it that way. I do not dumb it down in any way, and I don't want you to ever uh, think that I will. So uh, two years, and you will understand the lecture. I think that's good, and that's my goal. As per usual, we've been slogging along uh, the winding road that is the book of Romans, what I call the Leviticus of the New Testament for a reason, and I hope you understand that now that we've gone a year at this. As is always the case with every book of Scripture, it's necessary to uh, follow where the doors go or where the trails lead as much as humanly possible. And Romans 4 connects to Romans 4 connects to Hebrews, I would say 3 through 6, but for today, let's just say Hebrews 6. And that connects to James 2. All of those very controversial uh, in um, the theology circles today or scholarship today and most uh, churches today uh, and needn't to be that case, but uh, that is the, uh, the path that we're on right now. Romans 4 connecting to the five warnings of the book of Hebrews. I say all the time, if you're reading the book of Hebrews and you do not find the five warnings that are in there, then you are already in real trouble and as far as understanding that uh, particular scripture, uh, book of scripture. And then uh, Hebrews connects us to James 2, as I said. Now let me read James 2.18 really fast, uh, and we'll get back to it. And I'll just give you the, uh, the problem, and you can understand how we'll solve it. Here's what it says. Now immediately in your mind, start comparing it to uh, Romans 4 or Hebrews 6. But... Someone will say. What's the obvious question right off the bat? Who's someone? What's he going to say? What's the other real question that you need to think about immediately? Why is he going to say it? What's his motive? What's his agenda? Who is this someone? Why is he saying this? How does it fit with Romans 4? How does it fit with Hebrews 6? But someone will say, you have faith. And I have works. What's the next question? Yeah, what is it? Who is he saying it to? You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith with my works or by my works. And so, as you read that and as you hear that, start to ask the, the, the obvious questions. 
That, that will lead us back to Romans 4, where I have this juxtapositioning going on. As you know, Romans 4 has done something that causes all of this. It puts faith and belief on one side, or, uh, or if you will, add the word grace or gift, and on the other side is works or humanity or human-based effort or something that human, um, human-sourced for no other word, or for lack of another word, human-sourced effort. So I have believing God, or belief here, and over here I have humanity. And Romans 4 separates that and puts them on display prominently. They're adjacent, and they're intentionally put side by side because they are the absolute opposites. What a human does and what what God requires are absolute opposites when it comes to salvation. So that is what's happening in Romans 4. Now, many will, will say and have said that James 2.18, I'll just put 18 up here for you, James 2.18 is not consistent. James 2.18 and Romans 4 are in conflict, and that's the debate that we're entering today. Unreconcilable, they will tell you. This is an inconsistency. And all the time I hear uh, uh, prominent entertainers, sometimes athletes, who have a platform, who are anti-Scripture, anti-Bible, because they think it says something it does not say. And they will say constantly to me, or to anyone who will listen, that they have found over a thousand uh, inconsistencies or thousand contradictions in the Bible. It's very common. Uh, how many have they really found? None. Why do they think they found them? They have no idea what's there. And it is a position that is uh, based in uh, a lack of understanding. and It's uh, a very sad thing, but at the same time very common. Okay. As with the book of Hebrews, the book of James was delivered to dispersed dispersed Jewish believers. So both of these have that in common. They both were written at the time they were written to Jews. And the Jews were what kind of people? What kind of Jews are they? I'm going to label them. They were Christian Jews. And they were not... uh, They were not in Jerusalem. So what's the obvious question? Why weren't they in Jerusalem? That's where Jews live. But they weren't. They weren't in Israel. And that makes it all the more connected to Romans. Remember, the key to understanding Hebrews 6, the key to understanding the book of Hebrews is that it was written to people in the context of Matthew 12. Now, again, I understand that if you've never heard any of this before, this is kind of tough. Um, Kathy said for us, Amanda, not to boo you during the sermon because you were named Amanda, and we don't really like the other Amanda that much. She's my daughter-in-law, by the way, and she's pregnant. So she is, by far, the favorite daughter-in-law now, except now Lindsay's pregnant. And so I'm in a real conundrum over which one I'm choosing to give all my wealth to now. Definitely, we've cut out Anna. Anna's on the bottom, and she knows it, and she's plotting accordingly. So, But uh, anyway. I just brought that up because I know Amanda, Amanda number, uh, the second Amanda. Is that okay? Okay, she, she says it. If you don't know what Matthew 12 is, okay, Matthew 12 is the place in Scripture where the Jews 
reject the Messiahship of Jesus Christ on the basis that he is not God. So in other words, let me repeat this. I don't say it enough, and I had a wonderful letter from uh, uh, Sharon in Texas where she said, I had never heard this before, and it has solved so many problems. I'm paraphrasing her. And Sharon also said to please not refer to her as sarcastic anymore. She was sardonic, uh, and, um, which means that she's sarcastic. Yeah, right. By the way, she'll, she'll dispute that and I'll get another wonderful letter from her. But uh, she is terrific and we appreciate her very much. But Matthew 12 is the place in Scripture where God has come and with humanity. He has added humanity. That's who Jesus Christ is, God in the flesh, so that we can get some kind of understanding of what God is like. He is creator God himself and he is standing in front of the nation of Israel and he is telling them that he is God himself. He is there. He is the God of Israel and he has come to set up his messianic kingdom and they reject him on the basis that he's really Satan. Or he has Satan inside of him controlling him. That is called the unpardonable sin. It must be, it must be done by a nation. It must be on the basis that God physically in front of them beginning his, or saying that his kingdom has come, the messiahship has come, and they reject him on the basis that uh, he is really in fact Satan. That is the unpardonable sin. It cannot be committed by a human being. But it's often taught that it is. You have to know that that is the undercurrent to Hebrews 6 is Matthew 12. That is the underlayment or the substrate, as I try to say. And that means that Hebrews 6 was written to people, Jews, that knew very well what that was and how it happened and that they were suffering the consequences of it because they were out of Jerusalem because of that particular issue. The fact that Israel rejected Christ caused the Jews who received the book of Hebrews to be outside of the nation of Israel. They are out there because of one thing that Christ told them. What did he tell them? Get out. The consequence of rejecting my Messiahship will result in what? The destruction of Israel. The Romans are coming. And everyone in Jerusalem will be massacred. And that is why Hebrews 6 Jews are not in Jerusalem. But they've been out there a while. I've been waiting. And I got a nice letter from Paul. I'm confident that it is Paul. Uh, more buffet material is arriving. In case any of you were worried about that. Big Blue is coming in, and you know we don't call him Big Blue, uh, except uh, for obvious reasons. He's going to bring something really good. We should wait. Yeah, we should actually, standing ovation would be appropriate. What did you bring, Blue? Say it's chicken wings or something cool. Booth Stroganoff. There you go. Didn't have to go to the Sisita. Did not have to go to the Sisita River. You could add it right here for nothing without losing all your feet and hands and things, ears, nose. Some of us that'd be good. Okay. But that is why they are out there is because Christ told them uh, that, uh, that one of the consequences of rejecting his Messiahship will be the destruction of, Is- uh, of Israel, specifically Jerusalem and the temple. It will be torn down brick by brick. The Romans actually did that trying to get the, uh, the gold that was, uh, uh, they, they thought uh, the Jews were hiding from or were refusing to pay uh, as in a tax sense. And they destroyed everyone there and they destroyed every building there and they destroyed the hill upon which Christ was crucified. So if you go over there and uh, pay money to take the tour of, and they show you the place that Christ was crucified, then what are you? That's right. 
Sucker mouse. You just got cheated out of your 150 bucks. The Romans tore that hill down. That is the hill, as you know, where the skull of Goliath was buried. That's why it's called the skull of Goliath hill, or Golgotha. Golgotha, the skull of Goliath, buried there by David. And Christ, God, chose to be crucified on that exact spot. I can't say that often enough. Anyway, that is why the Hebrews are out in the wilderness, if you will, or away from Jerusalem, is because they uh, have been told to get out of there. It's going to be destroyed, and now they've been waiting for a while, and it hasn't been destroyed. So what are they thinking? I'm giving up my cable TV. Uh, You know, I'd like to go back. Uh, We're tired of being out here. No indoor plumbing. Of course, there's no indoor plumbing, period, right? Thanks for laughing. Uh, so they're, they're thinking about returning to Jerusalem, and that is the purpose of the book of Hebrews. That is why it was written to them, the letter was written to them. It was an admonition not to return, and the consequences of returning. And if you don't know that, and you're reading Hebrews, and you're trying to apply it to yourself out of context, what's going to happen? Yeah, big mess, which is what normally happens. Okay? So, probably in the last... Oh, in the top ten of tragic consequential failures of the church over the past 2,000 years, uh, certainly in the top ten, maybe in the top five, maybe the top three, it's hard to say, but it's this allowing the book of Hebrews and the book of James to be corrupted. Not knowing the context of Hebrews 6 is Matthew 12, and not knowing that James 2 is not in conflict with Romans 4 has been a great failure of the church. A great failure of the church. And who did it? Who wanted to corrupt all of that and make a mess out of it? See, they did it uh, for a reason. They had a they had an agenda. They made it a control based. They had a control based motive, and that's why I say it's certainly in the top five of the great failures of the church over the past two thousand years. Obviously, uh, not defending the deity of Christ is clearly number one. You will go into churches today all over this country and they will give you an ambiguous feeling with regard to the person of Christ. They will not say to you that he is God himself in the flesh, creator God. They won't do it. They usually lower him and they strip his deity away. They don't understand the appellation or the title son of God. They don't know what that really means. They think that it's inferiority. And I've actually had people come to this class who get mad at me because I ask this question. Do you think that Jesus Christ is inferior to God? And they answer yes. And that is what? That's blasphemy, heresy, and certainly untrue. But it's very common in the church today. And that is the number one failure. And I can't help but think about the Mariolatry that are in some denominations where uh, uh, Michelangelo, I think, made the statue. I'm not positive of that. Uh, Art is not my thing. But uh, the statue of Mary holding Christ. Have you ever seen that statue? uh, Mary is how big? Christ is how small in comparison. He is much smaller than she is. She is a massive figure. And that was intent. They made uh, Mary into co-redemptrix and equal to and sinless. They not only said she was equal to Christ, she was sinless as well. And so that kind of doctrinal failure has been very destructive. Uh, And I would say that's number one of all the failures. Uh, Replacement theology number two, where everyone thinks they're still the nation of Israel. 
Um, fortunately, 1948 put a kibosh to a lot of that, but there's still people today that think that God has replaced Israel with them and that they are the real Jewish nation now, and they run around and they start uh, sects all over the western part of the United States, and you can figure out where I'm at there. But now we're in a discussion of what has done the most damage, caused the most devastation. Um, what, what, what failure in the church has been the worst? And there's ten of them, I think. Casting out the Old Testament... I think probably one of the and listen, I not want to. I know besmirch. They did it. They did it in a, with a good attitude. Your good intentions, right? They handed out just what the little red what New Testament, as if the Old Testament had no significance and no value at all. If you don't have both, you're you're going to struggle. I'm glad you have half. But the Old Testament is critically important to understanding the New Testament, and the New Testament critically important to hand out there to understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it has this richness of the portraits of Christ. Uh, Christ on every single page of the Old Testament. That's what it's about. That's how you know it's Scripture. And we're compared. That's a major flaw, a major failure in the church, along with this manipulative, warped, work-based salvation system that God calls wickedness. And it's built, or it's intended uh, to be destructive. And they intended to, to uh, make James and Hebrews, uh, their interpretations, to be destructive. So uh, I don't know which is worse. It's hard to determine. It's hard to say. I have staked my career in the last 15 years, if you can call it a career, on the pictures of Jesus Christ that have been placed on every page in the Old Testament. That's what I've done. That's what I'm known for. Uh, and um, so obviously I think losing that has been critical. And so that's obviously where I fall in that discussion. And I believe uh, the concession to monistic evolutionary philosophy has been a horrible, pure evil. When you go around as a church and say that monism Cessation of existence is a method by which God used to create. My goodness. I don't even know how to begin to talk to you about it. I don't know what to say. Cessation of existence means that there's purposelessness. There's hopelessness. uh, And that descends into hedonism, as you've heard me say before. So that's really bad. But losing Hebrews and James has been a very sad event in the church history. And that's why we've kind of arrived at it. I'm going to battle it today so that you at least know where this goes and how to fight. The third warning of the book of Hebrews has this as its goal. It's going to define something for you. Uh, The third warning, Hebrews 6, says that something is impossible. And it's very important for you to know what is impossible. It is the place in Scripture that... uh, the impossible is dealt with. And you must know immediately uh, what exactly is it that's impossible and how to figure it out because you must figure it out so that you never, never be at a place at any time in your life where you think that Hebrews 6, James 2, and Romans 4 are in disunity or, or any scripture for that matter is in discord. Uh, all scripture must fit together. All scripture must connect. That's how we know it's Scripture. If it doesn't connect, 
It's not Scripture. It doesn't testify of Christ in the Old Testament. It's not Scripture. If you can't find Christ on every page, it's not Scripture. That's how they determined that which was, was uh, inspired and breathed by God and that which was just uh, plain junk. So, to state it plainly, or more plainly, hopefully, Romans, Hebrews, and James are not in contention. There is no discord, none, no division, none. If you have a conclusion otherwise... What's the problem? You see, they can't be in contention. They can't be uh, disconnected. It's not feasible. Because if it's true, then Scripture is what? It's dead. To attempt to place Scripture in opposition to itself is, if it's intentional, then it's evil. If it's done in ignorance, then it's foolish. Ultimately, it becomes wicked uh, at some point, regardless of the intent, declaring it to be of human origin. So, to begin an analysis on the premise that Scripture is incongruent with Scripture is to, uh, uh, frankly, begin with such great error that the result will be great ruin, and you will not understand, and no wisdom will come to those who intend to attack the goodness of God. That's what's going to happen. If you start to separate Hebrews from James and James from Romans on purpose, then you're calling God evil. That's ultimately where all of those discussions end. Because, uh, 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 well, you, you will say that God has intended something that is confusing. Or you will say that God has intended something that is, results in condemnation for every person. But even knowing that this is true, off into the darkness so many are eager to go. And, and many more so determined to follow. And, and so the question becomes, what causes this? What causes people to take Hebrews 6 and declare it to be an example where God will leave you to yourself and die in your sin without any hope and no purpose and no... Uh, Opportunity for redemption. He will let you just be condemned. And Why would people say that? And if you are saved, they will tell you in Hebrews 6, you can cast off your salvation in a moment of weakness and become destroyed. And he will allow that to happen. Why will they say that? What's their point? Yeah, control is exactly right. With control comes what? More control, more power. With more power, more control, what comes next? Well, people will teach you things in Hebrews 6 for the purposes of enriching themselves. Be very suspicious of anybody who attempts to gain power over you. As we've talked about, as I made jokes about, I'm not trying to be as funny as I normally am because this is a serious subject. And the, um, the people who always laugh at my jokes are out moose hunting. So, uh, But again, this is very serious. People who will tell you that you will lose your salvation unless you subscribe to their particular mode or their particular organization or you do, you submit yourself to them in some fashion. They hold a certificate that determines your final destination and after you die because you won't cease to exist, you're an immortal being. They're doing it for the money. That's what's happening. Timothy, 1st Timothy 6.10 is a complex, extraordinarily complex verse. And you know it. 
For the love of money is the root of all evil. Love of money, root of all evil. That's what it says. And immediately you got to say to yourself, wow, how is it that the love of money is the root of all evil, all evil. Satan starts with the first lie. He is told, uh, he, we are told that he is the one who has the very first lie. That's powerful right off the bat because he knows it's a what? It's a lie. So what is his motive? How do I reconcile the, the beginning of all lies, the father, if you will, of all lies, Satan, and the root of all evil, the love of, of money. What is the same about the first lie and the love of money? They must be the same somehow. They must have the same motive, the same production, or the same uh, final end. There must be a relationship between the love and the root of, of money and the first lie of Satan. And I'd like to do that today. Uh, how they all fit together, but I can't. I don't have time. I have to deal with this Hebrews 6 stuff and um, James 2. But put that in the back of your head because God's definition of love of money and God's definition of money is very important. God's definition of lie, very important. Not your definition, but understand today, humanity does strange things in church, churches because they love money. Biggest problem we've got. Okay, how does all this start? Paul pre- presents, to recap a little bit, Paul presents Abraham, followed by David, in Romans 4, followed by circumcision. And that is, that, if you remember, is the uh, Abraham, that's the formula, followed by King David, followed by circumcision. And Paul says, there you go. That settles it completely. There is no possibility that there is such a thing as a human-based, works-based salvation. It's not possible. You cannot earn your way to heaven. There's nothing you can physically do to get to heaven. There's nothing you can physically do to have eternal life. The only way that you can have it is a belief, faith, grace-based system. And this proves it. Abraham, David, circumcision. There's no room for any other issue now. That solves it. If you think that somehow you're going to do something to earn your way into a redemptive state, or an eternal life, you're going to have control over it. You're going to in any way affect it by your human effort. You are wrong, and the proof of that is Abraham, David, and circumcision. That is Romans 4. And Paul presents it that exact, that exact way. The final blow, these are his first two arguments, and then circumcision is his final blow that destroys it, destroys the pharisaical system that the Jews had. They thought insured. What did the Jews think? They thought all Jews go to heaven. What about the Gentiles? None. Sorry. Sad to be you. All Jews will go to heaven based on what? Circumcision. All Gentiles? Condemnation? All of them. That's what they thought. Were they happy about that, by the way? Oh, yeah. 
They were. That's why God was angry with them. As God defines anger, God defines anger differently than we do. His anger is not the same as our anger. So how does all this start? Just like this. Abraham, David, the final blow circumcision. To those who seek to control by, to those who have a human-based, effort-based salvation, to those who have a love-moneyer system, the love-of-moneyer churches, the love-of-moneyer organizations that say they have some salvation system that you can buy, some salvation which means you can earn, something that you can attain with your own effort. Right? Well, yeah, purgatory has a very much a, a, this element. If you end up in purgatory, or, you know, you can work your way out of it, right? That's right. You can have somebody, you know, bail you out, can't you? And, and there are other religions in this country, as you know, where uh, um, uh, you can pray for the dead people that uh, didn't have it figured out. And your effort can not only save yourself, but your effort can save them. All you got to do is do what? Sign here. What are you signing? Membership. And we determine if your prayers are going to be what? Heard. How are you going to get them heard? Well, you're going to be a member. And then we're going to determine if you're a good member. How are we going to determine you're a good member? Oh, yeah, we're going to be doing accounting. If you're not a good member, then all your family members that you're praying for are going to be saved. So, love of money, root of all evil. What is the same as loving money and the first lie? Because there's a relationship between the two of them. Okay, back to this. Abraham is honored in Scripture, declared by God to be saved because Abraham believed God. Believed. That is how he is saved because he believed something. He didn't do anything. He believed. Okay? Not a physical act, a spiritual act. Do you understand the difference? One is of the mind, the other is of the body. He did not have a physical act. He had a spiritual act. It is not monism, by the way, because to have a spirit is immediately a dualistic concept, right? There is no cessation of existence in any human being. There is immortality. All that is at stake is the destiny of the, of the choice or the belief or rejection of the person. Abraham believed a spiritual act. And he is saved by that. Next, King David comes along, and he is in the context, if you will, or the midst of something when he makes this statement. And he is in the context or the midst. Uh, he is just out of this incredibly heinous act. What did he do? He raped Bathsheba, took her and raped her, and then murdered her husband Uriah. And he, in the midst of that, he figures out through Nathan the prophet that he is forgiven. And why is he forgiven? Does he deserve to be forgiven? What does he deserve? He deserves condemnation, deserves death, but he doesn't get it. Why not? Because the salvation system is belief and it is grace. It is a gift that you are undeservedly given. And it has to be given because it's so valuable. What is it ultimately that you're getting? Ultimately, we'll get it in the, get to it in a minute. You're, uh, you have a cup. And inside the cup is the blood of Christ, the infinite, omnipotent blood of God.
who adds humanity specifically to supply not just this, but it's a sacrificial issue as well, uh, a legal issue. But he adds humanity so that blood and flesh, his blood and his flesh, which isn't corrupt. Our blood, my, my flesh, is obviously co- corrupt. All I need is a mirror to see that. I'm dying every single day, and I know it. Some of us know it really well. Some of us are young. Let me look again. Okay, a few. Some too big a number. Most of us, it is obvious that our blood isn't any good, and our flesh isn't any good, and we need real blood, uh, life blood. We need life flesh. It's ultimately a medical uh, operation. We'll get to that in a minute. But it has to be given to you. How expensive is a drop of it? If you have a drop of it, you have eternal life. How expensive is that? It's off the chart. It's infinitely expensive. And you're a finite. I'm a finite being. We cannot possibly earn it. Can't do it. There's nothing you can do. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough ability. It's too precious. And David knew, I murdered Uriah. I raped his wife. I should be executed. And instead, I'm alive. And I'm forgiven. And that is because it's grace. It had to be given to me. There's nothing that he could do to get it. And David testifies of that. He confirms the truth of salvation by believing, by faith, by grace. Paul puts them back to back. Abraham believed. Abraham believed. The father of Israel, if you will, believed. That's how he was saved. And David, King David, he assaults the earned, work, self-centered, human-centered system. He is given grace, given salvation, while guilty of heinousness. And then circumcision, the final nail in the human-based system of salvation that the Jews had. It's universally accepted as contributing to salvation by the Jews. If you're circumcised, you're a Jew, you're saved. That's what they believed. And how did it happen? How do you get service? How do you become a Jew? Physical heritage, primarily, right? Physical heritage. So let me say it again. Physical. Physical. The focus is not spiritual, is it? It's physical. Circumcision is a physical system. Not a spiritual system. And they believe that through their heritage, all that are, who are physical descendants of Abraham are saved. And Paul says, no. And he destroys such thinking. What's Paul? He's a Pharisee before he is saved. How is he saved? One of the greatest mass murderers of all time. How did he get saved? earn it? Do you deserve it? Given to it. Why? Nice catch, huh? Thank you. Thank you for that. I should get some medicine. I earned it. I used to be pretty good at catching things. Now the only thing I catch is what Seth brings home from junior high school. Some kind of strange virus, one after another, that I have no immunity to whatsoever. And I know how he gets them. How does he get them? That's right. No hand washing of any kind ever. Ever. Not one time. You think that's funny. You watch me watch what he reaches into. Never mind. Don't want to ruin the buffet for any of you. 
Never, you know Chronister's eighth law, never, never, never accept a sandwich from a teenage boy. Never. Even if he told, especially if he tells you he just made it. Microwave that baby. Blow that sucker to pieces. That's your only hope. You're going to die. You think I'm kidding. I have, I have, as you know, I was a, a teacher for many, many years in the public school system. I was young, and I never got sick. That's when I knew I was, it was time to quit. That's when I couldn't help but be sick. So I'm an expert. Don't try it yourself. Paul destroys circumcision because he points out one thing, destroys it as a means of salvation. He says, listen, Abraham believed and was saved before he was circumcised. Circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's uh, belief-based salvation. And so he wiped it out completely. Abraham, the model of all who are saved, was given eternal life while he was uncircumcised. His salvation was not physical, it was spiritual. So all the descendants of Abraham that are saved must be spiritual descendants. That's what that means. That's what that argument is. Abraham, David, circumcision. Those are the rocks. That's the fortress of Romans 4. So if you ever have somebody come to you and say, there is some kind of human-based, human-earned, human system that will get you saved, and you must do it, and by the way, pay me while you're doing it, because I am the one, the arbiter, of whether or not you're actually saved. Anybody says that, you repeat to them, Abraham, David, circumcision. Keep your money. Last week, now, moving on to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 declares that something is impossible. Hopefully this will all fit together for you. Something is impossible. That's what Hebrews 6 talks about. It's the great impossible verse in the New Testament. Something that's impossible. For those who receive the free gift of blood of Christ. There's something impossible for them to deal with or to do. The blood transfusion, if you will. The medical procedure. Our blood, my corrupted blood, your corrupted blood, my flesh. That's what communion is. It's a symbol of that. It's a, a symbol of that, this medical procedure. Our blood, our flesh is replaced by his blood, his flesh. And it's free. It has to be free. And he puts it on the table and he says, take the blood. Believe what he says is true about who he is and what he does and take the blood. Now, once you have the blood, how illogical is it to conclude that it is possible to reverse the transfusion? How's that going to work? You've just been given a blood transfusion. How are you going to reverse it? What's your plan? What's required? What's the anatomy of the process, the steps, if you will? What's step one, step two? Let's see. I take the blood. Uh Uh-oh, hold it. Stop the exchange. Give me my dead blood back. That's your plan? What could possibly make you do that? Who would ever think that, who would ever tell you that that was possible or logical or reasonable or in any way? Why would they tell you that? Why would they tell you that? Why would they tell you that? 
love of money is the root of that doctrine. That is an evil doctrine. And they do it because they want control of you. And they do it because control gives them money. What is money, ultimately? What do I do with money? That's why I love, and I, I can't wait to say this, because um, Talia is here, I just love Christmas. Okay, you know that I have great struggles with it. But what I love about it is that you buy what? Stuff. What is stuff? Well, it's stuff. What's it made of? Is it a spiritual or a physical endeavor? Some will tell you it's a spiritual endeavor. Anna will tell you that. But she's wrong. What she's wrong is, is that her brain is, is emitting or secreting, if you will, uh, chemicals that give her a physical euphoria. So it is a physical event. Okay? That is the problem. That's why I, I like to watch it so much. And it is supposed to be a what? A spiritual event. How fast is the salvation process? Let me ask you that. How fast is believing God? How fast, is it, how fast does it go? Thoughts. How fast are thoughts? They are non-physical. How fast are they? What would you say? Some people would say that the fastest thing that is in existence is what? They will say light. Is, is anything faster than light? Make it through. Back comes the ever-necessary subject of quantum physics. And you should know that the science community has been shaken by something, uh, by the European Organization of Nuclear Research. What did they do? They call it CERN, by the way. C-E-R-N. What, what happened there recently? Does anybody know? The greatest discovery of 2011. What was it? Neutrinos, yes. They said that uh, they have found particles, neutrinos, that are traveling faster than light. And the implications of such a finding, if it's true, are cataclysmic to Einstein's theory of relativity. So prepare yourself to, for the inevitable return of that subject, right? We have to do it. Now let's ask the question, is there anything faster than light? If CERN is wrong, and it's possible CERN is wrong, there's explanations flying back and forth. By the way, if, if something is faster than light, that affects time. That makes something possible then. What's that? That's right. And that should be impossible. But there's something else impossible, by the way, and that's in Hebrew 6. So we're going to head that way in just a minute. Is the creator of light faster than the light he created? Let me ask you that. Doesn't it require that if light is a created thing, and it is a created thing, that whoever created it must have the capacity to be faster than it? And, 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 and the creator, and time, by the way, is part of the created uh, order, isn't it? Time, energy, matter. The creator of time has to have what? Overtime in order to create it. He has to have control of it, authority over it. He's got to be able to be outside of it. Time would be finite. To him it is finite. And light has a finite uh, uh, speed as well. So who is faster, the neutrinos or the designer of the neutrinos? I am not surprised uh, that we are going to discover that something is faster than light. Is Einstein's theory of relativity in authority over the author of time and light? And just a few of the upcoming questions. Uh, some are simple. Those are all simple. Remember, Jesus Christ calls himself the primable. P R 
I-M-E-V-A-L, the primeval or the first light. That's what he calls himself, also called the Shekinah glory. He says, I am the very first light. That which turns energy into matter and matter into energy is what? Light. Light does that. Okay? And Christ calls himself light. Remember, matter, that's physical, into the non-physical. And then the non-physical back into the physical. He says he is the resurrection and the life. John 11:25. I am the resurrection and the life. I will take that which is non-physical, the spirit, and I will turn it and put it back together with the physical. Dualism. I am the one who does that. Do you believe this? He who believes in me believes. That's the issue. He who has a belief that I am who I am, that I will give my blood and my flesh and I will take you and resurrect you, he who believes will have eternal life. It is a belief system. That's what Christ says. John eleven twenty five. I digress, as usual. Okay, now I understand the human perspective of the timing of the blood transfusion or what you'll run up here to tell me. So let me deal with it. What I mean by the timing of the blood transfusion is that exactly when, inside of time, because we are inside of time, he is not, keep that in mind, inside of time, exactly when those who believe God, the believers, and receive their blood, which is life blood versus our dead blood, okay, that's what I call the timing. So many think that they can affect that. They think that they can believe, and then they can not believe. They have the authority to do that. And then they can repeat that cycle ad infinitum because they think they have power. And they also think they have something else. What else? Time. Power and time. Who has power and time over time? Begin to start recognizing what you're saying about yourself when you say you have power and you have time. Who has time? God has time. It is his and his alone. And he also calls himself omnipotent. What's that mean? He has all the power and all the time. How much do we have? If he has all of it, what's left? Let's do the math. And they believe the people who think they have power and time, they think they can stop the blood transfusion process whenever they deem convenient. And that's why they do it, because it's convenient to them. They have a motive for doing so. As if they, uh, they, which is us, which is me, which is you, being created, being creatures that we are, we're things that are subject to time, inside of time, and time also a created thing, they believe they can overcome a process that is timeless because it is called timeless life. If you believe and you take the blood, you have timeless life, right? Timeless life. You've probably heard it said another way. How have you heard it said? Yeah. What is the difference between timeless and eternal. If you believe and you accept the blood of Christ 
and you believe in his name, and you have faith, and you take the gift, which is a spiritual act, accepting is a spiritual act, believing a spiritual act, then you have timeless life. And so anyone who thinks they can stop the blood transfusion process when they seem deem convenient, they think they can overcome a process that is timeless or eternal. You see, God does not see our salvation inside of time. He doesn't. Why not? He can't. Why not? Because he's the creator of time and he's outside of it. This is why you have to understand Einstein's theory of relativity. So that you are not confused over Hebrews 6, James 2, and Romans 4. How easy is that? All you have to do is understand a little bit about what Einstein wrote. Piece of pie. Easy as cake. But that's why I want you to do it, so that you don't struggle. God does not see our salvation inside of time. He views it eternally because he holds time in his hand. He is the only one who is able to do this, by the way, even though he has brought some humanity up into his realm and let them see things that are in front of them. Paul and John being specifically mentioned, Elijah as well, Enoch, I'm sure. So follow the logic. If he places his mark of salvation on us, it's an invisible mark, he puts it on us, he does it from an eternal perspective. What are the implications of that? Once you accept the blood, he writes your name down. He does, in a manner of speaking. You're in the book of life, Revelation 20:12, And something is now impossible for you to do. Hebrews 6. What is impossible for you to do? That's kind of where we left off last Sunday, so we should now start the sermon. I'm saying that to make Amanda laugh. It's really not true. We're almost done, Amanda. Don't worry, you can do it. Don't, don't look at the rest of these people at all. They're pretending to understand. They really don't either. It's just how we do it here. <laughs> I'm going to read this to you again. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible. What's impossible? Something is impossible. For Hebrew Christians who were hiding in the woods because they were told to hide out there because Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, but they thought about going back. And Paul tells them there's something impossible. Okay? Remember, all of this is in the context of that. It's in the context of Matthew 12. The unpardonable sin committed by the pharisaical nation of Israel and their priesthood. Not something you can do that I can do. That's the context. And these Hebrews that are out there in the woods, it's impossible for them to do something. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away. Now, by the way, the word if isn't in the, in the, uh, in the original. What's that? It is not. Having fallen. 
having fallen away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Crucify them again means uh, make him come and give more blood. He gave blood once. Uh Uh-oh, didn't work out. Got to have more. Come again. Let's do it again. Get more blood. So let's write all that down. I don't, I don't have time. Yes, I do. I have to do it. I have to make time or you won't get it. Okay, you will get it, but I'm worried that you won't. So A and B, I'll put C right up here where you can see it. Matthew 12 is the context. It's impossible for those who he wrote this to that are inside that Matthew 12 context. It's impossible for them to do something. Once they were enlightened... Once enlightened, okay, that's how I said it wrong there on purpose. Let me say it another way. Once enlightened, or once you are enlightened, it's impossible for you to do something. Does that make sense? What's enlightened mean? Once you are enlightened, it is impossible for you to do something. Okay? Once you have tasted the heaven-sent gift, you've taken the blood, the gift of blood. Once you've done that, okay, once you have taken the heaven, heaven-sent heaven gift of blood and you're enlightened, then it's impossible for you to do something. Obvious question again, what's it impossible? Once you've been a partaker of the Holy Spirit... So the spirit, the Shekinah glory of God is now inside of you called the indwelling. Once the indwelling, once the blood gift, once you've been enlightened, it's impossible for you to do something. And who's the, who are these people that have, that have done this? These are the Hebrew six people. These are the Hebrews in the Matthew 12. These are the people who did not reject Christ, who accepted his Messiahship, are, are out in the wilderness. Am I out of time? Okay, keep it, keep it going as long as you can. Trying to battle through this. Tasted the good word of God. Who's the good word? That is a name of who? That's a Christ name. Tasted Christ. Took the blood. Saw the miracles of the age. Power means miracles, by the way, in most cases. They fall. And, and the if isn't there. It's non-conditional. How do they fall? What they do is they return to Jerusalem, they return to Phariseeism, and they return to legalism, and they die physically in the city when the Romans come. That's what that means. If that, then it is impossible to be brought back to service or repentance since that would require a re-crucifixion of Christ. And a re-crucifixion of Christ is what? Impossible. You can't have a re-crucifixion of Christ. So in no form or no way does Hebrews 6 have anything to do about a Christian losing their salvation. Because it's impossible. That's one of the things that's impossible. If you say that Christ has to be re-crucified, that's shameful because then you're saying that the, uh, the blood that he gave in the first place wasn't, didn't work. It's not sufficient. It's flawed. We've got to re-blood. It's a failure. 
So, quick note two things. The word impossible controls both clauses, okay? It, close, it, it, it deals with the fall and it deals with the repentance. Okay, I just put I there. Those are the two clauses that the word impossible controls in the, uh, in the Greek. It is impossible. The fall away clause, it's impossible. And the renew them again back into service after the repent clause, it is therefore impossible to fall away for Christians. And since it is not possible to fall away, what's left for the baby Christians to do? And by the way, the baby Christians should be teachers by now. Since it's not possible for you to fall away, what do you do? For if I were to concede the point and say that it is possible for them to fall away, how do I get them back into service? I can't get them back into service if they can fall away. Because how could I, how could they get back into service? The only way to get them back into service is to what? Re-crucify Christ, which I can't do, that's impossible. So, in other words, those, those who teach you that you can fall and lose your salvation and be resaved are crazy. Because you would have to re-crucify Christ. And you can't do that. That's impossible. The Christ be re-crucified or the resaved view is ultimately, what's that word I want? Stupid. That works. Next week, we'll take apart James 2, 14 through 26. Let's rise and be dismissed.